Welcome to the Melungeon Voices Podcast, presented by the Melungeon Heritage Association. My name is Liz Malone, and I'm here with Heather Andalina, who is the president of the Melungeon Heritage Association. So Heather, here we are again, the final episode of the season, wrapping up season two. Mixed emotions, right? Yes, it's always so sad. Heather and I will never see each other ever again. (laughs) (laughs) No, but in all... We have too much fun. We do, we do, we definitely do. But in all seriousness, this has been an amazing season of conversations. So congratulations to you and the MHA for really uh, cultivating such a, a wonderful and informative group of people this year. Well, thank you, Liz. And of course, thank you for all your help. This this could not be possible without Liz's help on this. You know, her co-hosting and her producing and editing this. She's amazing. So, you know, we really thank you from the bottom of our hearts. So, Heather, I'm actually going to crown myself as an honorary Melungeon, if that's okay. I mean, can I do that? Can you I can an- totally do okay. that. I'm perfectly fine with that. I feel like I've learned so much about the Melungeons. I feel like I'm practically a Melungeon. So I have to at least be an honorary Melungeon. I can I can totally live with that. Yes, you have my permission. <laughs> the <laughs> you have pres- my blessing. The president has said I can be an honorary Melungeon. So it's there. <laughs> yes. It's, Liz Malone, it's been you recorded. Are. <laughs> yes, it's been recorded. <laughs> but no, yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. Well, it's been my pleasure and it's been a wonderful adventure for me in learning so much. And so for this week, last but certainly not least, we have a, a, an amazing guest, um, Dr. Arwen Smallwood, who was also uh, a wonderful speaker during this year's annual conference for the MHA. Yes. So anyone who attended that conference, this is certainly not a repeat. This is a whole new conversation. And he just really brings so much to the discussion about the Melungeons. Yes, he's so wonderful. And he's a great wrap up to our season. So why don't you give everyone a a little bit of an overview about Dr. Smallwood, who may not be familiar, which, oh my gosh, if you're not, you need to get his name (laughs) in your brain (laughs) and, um, and what you guys talked about. All right. Thank you, Liz. Dr. Arwen Smallwood is professor and chair of the Department of History and Political Science at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University in Greensboro. His research primarily focuses on the relationships between African American, Native American, and Europeans in Eastern North Carolina during the colonial and early antebellum periods. Wrapping up our podcast season two series, In this final episode, Dr. Smallwood and I examine the intersection between European, African, and Indigenous peoples, or to those who attended the MHA's virtual conference this year, the interrelationship between the Lost Colony of Roanoke, the Tuscarora people, and the Melungeon people. Now that's saying a lot, Heather. (laughs) Let's listen in and hear your discussion. Dr. Arwen Smallwood, welcome to the podcast. It's so wonderful to speak with you today, and I can't wait to get into our discussion today. Well, thank you. I appreciate it, Heather. Thank you for the opportunity uh, to to be here. Of course. So we're going to start off with, would you please share your story of how you learned about your own unique ancestry? I'll try to make it brief, um, (laughs) but... uh, 
in the little community I grew up in called Indian Woods, um, we all kind of took our heritage for granted because um, the families had been there for hundreds of years. If you were to look at the different families, they were all different, you know, colors and, um, you know, had different colors of, of eyes. But we considered ourselves African-American because we were obviously more African-American than anything else. But clearly, there were members of the community who were, uh, you know, were fairer and who could, have, you know, could appear to be, you know, you know, they appeared to be Indian. They appeared to be, you know, obviously a mix of white. They had green eyes, blue eyes. Uh, we call them hazel or gray eyes. So we took those things for granted. It was just family. It was a community. Everybody was related by blood. And, um, you know, if they weren't directly related by blood, they were seen as an aunt or an uncle and they were kin. And it wasn't until I went to college that um, I really understood the unique nature of my community. And then that was when I took a North Carolina history course. And in the North Carolina text, they referred to my community, which was called Indian Woods, by name uh, in the first chapter, basic second chapter of the book. And they talked about it being a reservation given to the Tuscarora Indians after the Tuscarora War. And at that point, I really became you know, even more interested in understanding that you know we had this Indian ancestry and we've been living in this area for such a long time. Uh, you know, who were we? You know, and that that would help me understand why we were so diverse and why we looked the way we looked. So would it be safe to say that your ancestry influenced your path to becoming a historian? Without question. You know, when you're living in history, mm-hmm. and when I say hundreds of years of history, I, I literally mean hundreds of years of history. I mean, uh, on both sides of my family, my father and my mother's family have both been from the community, um, you, know, you know, which is not a very large community, uh, going back before slavery, during slavery for, for hundreds of years. And we know where everyone's buried, you know, mm-hmm. at the church since the Civil War, everyone's buried at the church. But, but prior to that, there were a number of unmarked slave cemeteries that are scattered all over the community that uh, locals, of course, would know. And then uh, Indian burial grounds that uh, were very well known to my grandfather and, and my ancestors. So without question, you know, when you're growing up in a community and you're being supported by and loved by people around you, your family, you go to church together, you go to school together, ride the bus, you don't think about your history. But when you get outside of that community and realize that you're different than other people, because you just assume that's how everybody is, that's when you start to appreciate it. And so taking that North Carolina history class and realizing that um, you know, Indian Woods was a unique place mm-hmm. that it was so unique that, it, you know, this, you know, uh, Leffler and Newsom wrote the history of North Carolina. They were well-known professors at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And their book on North Carolina history was like the book, you know, the Bible of North Carolina history. And you're mentioned, you know, your community is mentioned, yeah. but that's it. The name's mentioned and no one knew anything else about the, you know, at least it wasn't anything else in the book about the community, nor could you find any books about the community. Um, and so that inspired me to write it. And one of my professors, uh, when I went into graduate school to work on my master's in history, I had to do a master's thesis, uh, which would be, you know, whatever history I wanted. And I asked, could I write a history of my community, Indian Woods? And my professor said, if you don't write it, nobody else will. <laughs> and so, yes, without question, that's what led me to become a historian. <laughs> that is so cool. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> this past summer... You delivered a compelling and highly informative presentation during our recent 2021 annual union conference, which was held virtually this year. And again, thank you for your participation. The connection between the Melungeon people, 
the Tuscarora, and the Lost Colony of Roanoke, would you please provide a few key takeaways for those who were unable to attend? The first really major takeaway is that, uh, and and I've had the honor of visiting uh, with Melungeons in the mountains at places like uh, the home place, Vardy, but also in Wise, Virginia, but throughout Appalachia, and have found them to be very, you know, warm people and uh, have a very rich history. And, and they often talk about things like the evil eye. They talk about, you know, this, this, you know, mixed heritage of possibly Muslim and Jewish heritage, whatnot. But they're not sure exactly where it came from, right? It's kind of like they're in the mountains. And so one of the takeaways is, is that you have to go back and understand, and it's been kind of left out even out of the North Carolina narrative, that prior to the, the whites being left at Roanoke, there were over 700, somewhere between five and 700, um, you know, Maroons, uh, which are runaway slaves who were in the Spanish islands in the Caribbean, who were a mix of Moors, Muslims, Jews, um, you know, but a mix of different ethnic groups, including Caribbean Indians, who were left at Roanoke Island a year before the whites were left in 1586. And, it's, you know, no one's ever cared about what happened to them. But these were individuals who were armed. They were given uh, English guns and they and led. And they also had survived in swamps in you know Jamaica and in Cuba oh, and wow. Puerto Rico. And they were picked up and brought and left in eastern North Carolina. So it's very clear when you look at it, look at it now that these people blended with the local Indian populations who were decimated by diseases that were brought by the English when they first arrived in 1584-85. And so you see the Machapunga people, and then even these stories that are amongst the Melungeons, it's amongst Machapungas and Melungeons. The Munchapungas, they were known to have six fingers. Mm, and oftentimes uh-huh. the Melungeons are <laughs> said to have had six fingers. The evil eye, the Tuscarora eye, because so many of the Tuscarora Indians had blue eyes, green eyes, and gray eyes, which were unlike any of the native peoples that were there. And the Muchapungas, the Madame Mesquite, the Bear River, and Tuscarors all were in alliance and intermixed with each other. And so, um, and so it's just understanding history, right? Really understanding what took place. And this is happening in the 15 and 1600s. And then the, the, these mixed Indians, you know, the Tuscarors become very mixed and they're triracial. They get pushed, if they're not enslaved, you know, during the Great Tuscarora War, they're pushed into the Piedmont and eventually into the mountains of uh, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. So it's, it, so I think those are the key takeaways, you know, that when you, most of the time, what I found in my research and in starting in Indian Woods and with our mixed heritage in Indian Woods is that every community thought it was unique. You know, there are community, other communities in North Carolina that are similar and have, you know, the same kind of ancestry. There are other communities in Appalachia, in Tennessee, Kentucky, and Virginia and West Virginia have the same kind of, you know, um, history. And, and But they think they're unique. They think, well, this is just our little community here in Bardi. And they don't understand the connection and how they got to be in Bardi. And basically, uh, they were fleeing persecution because if you had any mixture, once Virginia and North Carolina established uh, slavery, if you had any mixed, you would be classified as black or as Negro, and then you could be enslaved. So many people of color, you know, moved ahead of colonial settlement and found isolated places to settle where they would hopefully not be bothered. And the mountains were a very safe place until the whites started to, you know, penetrate the mountains and they wanted the fertile valleys. And so many of these people would run up into the hills. They had to go up into the and isolated areas that were hard to get to 
or up into the uh, into the mountains, into the sides of the mountains. Now, I remember you saying something about that they followed the rivers, you know, from North Carolina into Tennessee. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it, uh, that's a reverse pattern, right? Okay. So mm-hmm. if you go to the earliest history of um, native settlement in Virginia, North Carolina, the Tuscarora Indians who settled in, in uh, North Carolina and pretty much were the, the major nation of Indians in North Carolina from the outer banks of North Carolina to the mountains. Uh, oftentimes when people think of natives in North Carolina, they think of Cherokees, you know, but the Cherokees were really in um, Tennessee. They, they were in the heart of Tennessee and they were in, you know, North Georgia and that extreme, you know, southwestern part of North Carolina. But the dominant group in North Carolina, north of the, you know, Catawba and uh, Catawba River and Cape Fear River were the Tuscaroras. And so, but they came into North Carolina, the history of the Iroquois, you know, and I touch on this in, in the presentation, they, they come into North Carolina out of um, the mountains and out of uh, Ohio. There's an ancient city in southern, uh, well, really southern uh, Illinois, you know, but they come out of the Ohio River Valley. But in southern Illinois, there's an ancient city called Cahokia. It was an ancient city, a mound city, uh, very much like the cities of the Aztecs. And that's where all of the Iroquois people originated as one people. And they move east into New York and into down into North Carolina, and they break up into these different families, these different nations, Mohawks. Oneidas, Onondagas, Cayugas, Senecas, Tuscaroras, Maharans, and Nottaways. And the Tuscaroras and the Maharan and Nottaway come out of Virginia following the Roanoke River, out of the, 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 the valley there in Virginia. And the Roanoke River, the source is in Roanoke, Virginia, but it goes all the way down through Virginia and North Carolina. And then it empties into the Albemarle Sound uh, in eastern North Carolina near Bertie County or you know, the southern border of Bertie County. So they, the original migrations is the people are coming down. This is ancient migration, ancient Indian migrations. They're coming down that way. And so when whites begin to push east, uh, push west and push the Indians out of the east into the west, many of the native people are following those rivers right back to where they came from. So, you know, the sources of the other rivers, because, you know, the Tuscaloosa settled all the major rivers, the Tar, the Noose, the, the Cape Fear, uh, but the sources of those rivers are in the Piedmont of North Carolina, but the source of the Roanoke River was in Virginia. And they're basically are moving back and following the sources of the rivers and then going back into the mountains, um, you know, when they when they retreat. But so so that that river story is it, ancient in the sense that when they originally migrate to North Carolina, the Tuscaroras in particular, they're coming out of the mountains on those rivers, uh, following those rivers, and then settling along the banks of those rivers, and, and using their canoes, of course, to navigate those rivers out to the uh, sounds and out to the ocean. Uh, but then when the whites take the coastal areas, the coastal plains and the outer banks, they move back, follow those rivers back to where they originally came from. As a history professor of African-American history, How much of an impact does your personal ancestry, if any, play in your role as educating others when it comes to European, African, and indigenous intersections? I would say it has a profound impact. I was talking to a colleague about my experiences at A&T, because I am the chair of the Department here of History and Political Science at A&T. But they didn't, a lot of folks don't realize that I started my career at A&T. Uh, my very first position when I was finishing my PhD at Ohio State 
was as a visiting lecturer at North Carolina A&T. Um, my wife and I got married in 1993, and um, I worked here at A&T as a visiting lecturer, and she worked in Charlotte at the Charlotte Symphony. And so I commuted from Charlotte to Greensboro. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, say that, I, I say that to say it influenced how I see the world, because when I was here then as a young you know, professor, as a young you know, instructor, I taught world history and I taught American history and African-American history. And I understood that you really couldn't understand the American experience without understanding, um, you know, European history because of colonization and because of slavery. And so uh, certainly learning, um, you know, and then my obviously knowing my existence, knowing that, you know, we have family members who have, you know, who are dark skinned, straight Indian hair and blue eyes, you know, piercing blue eyes or with green eyes and some who are fair skinned, some who can pass with white, all different colors of people um, who are cousins, you know, first cousins and, you know, and aunts and, and so forth. I understood that, you know, just to understand what it means to be American, you know, is to understand how these cultures and these people came together and blended in the colonial period. And then understanding that initially that was not necessarily a bad thing. It only became a bad thing when uh, Virginia decided to use race-based slavery and they began to classify people who had any African mixture, really Indian mixture as well, as being Negroes, and they began to enslave them. But prior to that, it was not uncommon for um, indentured servants or for um, you know uh, landowners to have Indian wives. Because a, a little known fact, right? To trade with native people, you have to become kin, and to become kin, you had to marry one of their women. That was how you were able to trade with native people. So it's important to understand that many of the prominent plantation owners, when they came in, they had developed relationships. We, we kind of look at the Pocahontas story yeah. in Virginia with the Powhatans as being kind of odd, but really whether it's Tuscarawas or Mohawks or whoever, for, for traders you know, to trade or for people who want to move in and settle, they have to become kin, they have to become part of the nation. And we can look at that with Cherokees. I mean, the Cherokees mm -hmm. are known to have heavy mixture you know, with whites, uh, with Europeans in the early colonial period. Yes. And so it's just that's just one of the, the, the facts that you have to understand about that. And so there was it was not uncommon. And I, I'll go back to because you all know Walter Aspel Plecker. And we right. know about his, his his campaign against the Melungeons and mixed race people. And and we also I think most people who know that know that the narrative that, you know, he wanted to pass legislation in Virginia that if you had any mixture, that you would, you know, that you would be classified as as colored or Negro, mm -hmm. and the legislature refused to pass the legislation because all of them, many of them, traced their ancestry back to colonial times, and they were mixed <laughs> with Indians, with Powhatans, <laughs> and with other Indians. And so, to 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 pass a law that that was that absolute would bring all even them, the most prominent whites in Virginia, into question, and so they refused to do it. So that just speaks to you know the early history of our country. Uh, whether it's in Virginia, North Carolina, or the entire nation, particularly in the South, of how these cultures were mixing and blending uh, and how fluid they were, you know, in the, the earliest part of our history. Dr. Smallwood, is that where the quote-unquote Pocahontas Clause comes from? Now, that, that's a good question, and I don't have a definitive answer because <laughs> I hadn't heard that term. So I guess that is that a Virginia term, or I, I haven't heard that term. So, <laughs> Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I've, I've heard it spoken, yes. You know, because uh, I was just up in, I think it's Charles City, Virginia, 
And again, you know, any white family, whether it's Virginia or North Carolina uh, or South Carolina, any, anyone from the original 13 colonies and, and the original South, Southern colonies who traces their ancestry back to, you know, first contact, you know, to the 1600s, you know, they're going to have some mixture. You know, it's very likely they're going to have some mixture because that is really impossible. Most of the people who first came over were white men. They didn't bring women initially in Virginia and Jamestown. And so most of them had relations with Native women or took Native wives. So it's it's important to understand. You just have to understand the history. Now, we when we get into, you know, race-based slavery and we want to try to separate out who's black and who's white, and, and that is, you know, when that's done, that's, you know, of course, you know, they, they, these exceptions had to be made because anyone who really is part of these founding families, there was mixture, you know. There, there was always some mixture. And, and and in some cases, that's why you see such a unique history with slavery in places like North Carolina, had a huge free black population, particularly northeastern North Carolina. And, and in some cases, um, you know, you might have a native person who married a plantation owner, a Tuscarora woman who might have married a white plantation owner, but she has kin. She has, you know, kinfolk who are mixed with Africans and who are, you know, enslaved. And for native people, Kinship and kin is the most important thing. You know, it's more important than anything is kinship. You know, you're, you take care of your kinfolk. Right. So getting into that, the Melungeon people are a multi-ethnic group of people. My grandmother used to say we were like Heinz 57 sauce when asked about our ancestry. What are your thoughts on that comparison? Well, I certainly I would have to agree. And, 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 and what happens, I also point out to people, it's about survival, mm-hmm. right? I mean, right. Um, and so what happens is that, you know, families, you know, individuals who could pass, you know, first of all, people isolated themselves. And in this isolation, many mixed race communities, they didn't have a problem with, you know, either runaway slaves or Africans or with, um, you know, uh, indentured servants or Europeans, you know, poor Europeans, you know, um, coming into the community. But once you once you married into the community, you were part of the community. And if and, and remember, during these earlier times, you need individuals to one protect communities, no matter who you are, you need, you know, strong, able bodied people to protect the community. You need them to hunt for the community to help build and provide um, shelter for the community. So if you are willing to marry into the community and were willing to, um, you know, to help that community to survive, because remember, they're already isolated because they feel under siege, right, by, you know, expanding uh, slaveholders who are expanding slavery and so forth. So the communities easily and readily become mixed because, remember, all whites were not happy with their condition in the colonial settlements. Everybody was not, in fact, the majority were not uh, prosperous, were not doing well. Uh, many of them were, were poor. And then with the social structure and social hierarchy that existed, really the elites, you know, the colonial elites, the governor and the people who were members of the, of the colonial legislature, I mean, they had these privileges that the poor uh, did not in terms of education and everything else. So oftentimes, uh, poor whites, you know, found it better to live on the frontier in isolation or and they couldn't really live in isolation. They had to form alliances. So they found it better to live, um, you know, in alliance with and in fact, mixed with uh, these already mixed communities of native people and what became mixed race community. So it would not no, it's not a surprise at all. Now, again, there are three ways this happens. Of course, there is through force on the plantation where white masters 
you know, have their way with, uh, with Native women or African women who are enslaved. And then also you have these indentured servants or, you know, enslaved people intermixing. So in some cases, it could be originally in, uh, forced, but then people develop relationships. In fact, uh, with white indentured servitude, the, the white indentured servants were suffering uh, the same indignities that the black and the Indian indentured servants were. And so they saw had more of an alliance, you know, or, or more, you know, in alignment with, with each other than they were with the white plantation owners who exploited them in all ways imaginable, you know, uh, their labor and, of course, you know, uh, any other way that you could possibly imagine. One of the things I've found with the different communities that I've interacted with, whether they're in North Carolina, whether they're in the mountains in Appalachia, whether they're in Canada, or no matter where they are, the communities are tight-knit. And if you're in the community and you're considered kin, you're considered blood kin, they, they don't have any, they don't pay any attention to what you look like. You know, because there are some people in those communities that, are, that could be darker. There are some people in those communities yeah. that can, you know, look all European. But your kin, your family, and that's not looked at. But outsiders, people who are outside of the community, those are the people that are looked upon with suspicion until they demonstrate that they you know, are worthy of their trust. And once that is uh, accomplished, then that person can also be brought into that community and be married into that community and, and be appreciated. So that happens, yes, with uh, many of these communities, many of these um, mixed race communities. And Native people, that was part of their culture. That's what Native peoples would have done. They, they didn't really have a concept of race until the Europeans uh, or the English introduced it to them through slavery. Um, you know, it was about, you know, your value to the community. How can you contribute to this community and help protect and sustain this community? Yes, and I definitely see that within my own family. You know, we have lighter complected individuals and darker complected individuals. And you're exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's because it's, it's, it's interesting. Just one of those interesting, you know, side notes to this discussion is that because within their communities, there's mm-hmm. no question. You know, I mean, nobody even, you know, right. they, they just, that's, that's uncle so-and-so or that's cousin so-and-so yeah. down the street. <laughs> and everybody is working together, living together. It's, no, no, it's only, you know, you know, outside of that community, somebody coming in from outside of that community they look almost exactly the same. But if they are too white, they might be looked on with suspicion. Or if they're darker, they might be looked upon, you know, differently. But as far as the people in the community in terms of, you know, their blood ties, it's just a completely different thing, you know. So, Dr. Smallwood, please tell us a bit about your book, Bertie County and Eastern Carolina History, and where our listeners can purchase a copy. Oh, well, thank you again, uh, uh, you know, thinking <laughs> about that. Uh, that, that is, yes. uh, uh, the, the book is a one, it's available anywhere. I mean, you can order it through Amazon or on, you know, online through Barnes and Noble or or um, directly from Arcadia because this is part of the Arcadia Making of America series. Um, so it, you, you know, you it's it's readily available if you if you Google it, you can find it in multiple places. And in terms of what it's about and and why I de- I just developed it, you know, it, at the core, it's my my dissertation, which was about Indian woods. And my dissertation was titled um, uh, Indian Woods, you know, basically a history of three cultures, because, as I said, the people there, my ancestors there are triracial. They're Indian, black and white. And so um, but uh, and I still will publish that story separately in terms of talking about Indian Woods. But when I was trying to find a publisher from the dissertation, 
uh, they they thought that if I broadened the story to include, you know, um, the county and the region, that it would, you know, there would be more interest, which it has been quite a bit of interest because there's so many people that come out of that area. But I, I made a point of of respecting all of those aspects of my history um, and the history of the people there. So I do talk about, you know, the, the, the English and the Europeans who settled there and how they interacted with the native peoples. I talk about the native peoples first and their culture, because many people in, in the county and in the region didn't really know much about the Tuscaroos and their history and culture. And then, of course, I talk about the introduction of, of slavery and, and Africans and how you have mixed people enslaved. You have mixed people who are free people of color uh, who still live in that uh, uh, area. And then, of course, those who were forced out of the area, the Tuscaroos and the other, uh, the, their mixed ancestors being forced out. So I, I made a point of trying to, to tell the story in which I respected, you know, the cultures of all three groups and how they came together in that county because it's an old county and uh, the history of um, Indian Woods is that it was um, first recorded by the English um, explorers, you know, John White and Ralph Lane um, as early as 1584. And so you'll see it on the early English maps. It's called Moratuck, you know, right there on the, Indi on the uh, Tuscarora River, um, on the uh, Roanoke River. And, and so it's, um, it's been since 1584, it's been recorded. The community that, area, the county, the Roanoke River region has been recorded um, by, um, you know, by, by explorers, by colonists, you know, all the way down through it being established as a Tuscarora Reservation in 1717. And so um, I wanted to be true to that, and I wanted to make sure that the people of that region and then those people, and there are many, many people who trace their ancestry. Remember, the country moves from east to west. So most people who, whether they live in Texas or Arkansas or Tennessee, they originated in eastern North Carolina and then moved across oh, yeah. um, North Carolina and into the mountains and on across this country. So, so, so that's generally what it's about. It's, it's about telling the story and even cultural stories like food you know, traditions in terms of cooking and, and, uh, and seasoning of foods and whatnot, uh, barbecue or collard greens or whatever. I mean, it's, it's just telling a complete story of, of the lives of people and how those lives have been impacted by uh, the, the, the various cultures coming together. And on that note, for anyone who's interested in Dr. Smallwood's book, Birdie County and Eastern Carolina History, Birdie is spelled B-E-R-T-I-E. All right. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> uh, Dr. Smallwood, I just want to thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. Well, thank you for inviting me again. It's always a joy, you know, to talk with you, Heather. And uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to share this with, with your listeners. For anyone interested in contacting you, Dr. Smallwood, where can they where can they do that? Well, the, the simplest way is to just go to the Department of History and Political Science at North Carolina A&T, and it'll take you to me. Otherwise, I do have a LinkedIn. I, I don't have a web page, of, uh, a web page per se, but I do have a LinkedIn account where you can learn more about um, who I am and what I do. All right. That's perfect. You've been listening to the Melungeon Voices podcast. On behalf of myself, Heather Andalina, and the entire MHA Executive Committee, we'd like to thank all of those who participated in making this episode possible. For more information, you can visit them on the web at melungeon.org. That's M-E-L-U-N-G-E-O-N dot O-R-G. 
The information, views, and opinions expressed in this podcast episode do not necessarily represent those of the MHA. Melungeon Voices is presented by the Melungeon Heritage Association. All rights are reserved.